Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Well, welcome to our series, Road Dogs. As the video has just uh, alerted you, we join Paul and his missionary team on their second missionary journey. Today, we're going to be in the city of Thessalonica. But to really honor the story and what happens in Thessalonica, we have to kind of backtrack and go back and remember what happened in Philippi. These guys have arrived in Thessalonica, they are beaten up, and they have pretty much, they have limped into Thessalonica. A review passage from last week, Acts 16 verse 22 says, the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Now Philippi is about 90 miles away from Thessalonica. The wounds were not 90 miles away. The wounds were right there. The pain that Paul and Silas are still experiencing from the beating, the the severe beating that they took in Philippi is still with them when they roll into town, into Thessalonica, and they are on their way from Philippi to Thessalonica. They spend the night in little towns along the way, and they are tending to their wounds. Uh, Their backs hurt so badly that they couldn't even lean them up against a tree to get some rest um, because they were just so completely messed up by the beating they took in Philippi. And we open the story today and we see what happened in Thessalonica and we remember what happened in Philippi. We are watching, what I want you to understand today is we're watching the wounded, uh, the, wo- the walking wounded. We're watching the walking wounded. I think that there is something to be said for us today because if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will eventually happen to you. You will go through a season of your life where you have to simultaneously navigate your life and try to live your life for Jesus all the while while you are navigating some form of pain in your life. It might be a nasty breakup that you have with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and it just leaves you in a mess. But you've still got to live life. You've still got to go to class. You've still got to get groceries. You've still got to pay bills. You still have to go to work. Maybe it's physical pain. You might have a, a, you know, a hip that needs some attention or a back that needs some attention. And every time you move, you are reminded just how badly you need to get to the doctor and have it fixed you think about it every time you get up. Uh, some of you are, are carrying suffocating grief. And for some of you, that grief is fresh. And for others of you, that grief has lingered for some time. Either way, it is uh, nonetheless painful. And you would say, Brett, I don't know what all the stages of grief are, but I'm pretty sure that I haven't worked my way through all of those stages of grief. We're talking about the walking wounded today and then we get to the end we're going to circle back to this topic and we're going to ask the question how to be at our best when life is not at its best how to navigate life as you are navigating pain today's story unfolds in in three different parts and the first part is called the focus i want us to kind of look at the focus somehow as these guys limp into philippi They were able to ask the critical question, where are we going to, not as they limp into Philippi, but as they limp out of Philippi, they're asking the question, where do we go next? 
Somehow they're able to, to put their focus on the next thing that God is calling them to do. That's a critical question. Where are we going and why are we going? Now this is not always an easy question to answer when you feel like you are carrying pain in your life. Sometimes pain can get us distracted. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, not only do I want you to see where Paul and Silas end up, I also want you to see what they skipped. It says they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Why? Well, because Thessalonica was more strategic. Your time is limited, and and life is limited, and you can't do everything that you want to do, right? There's just not enough time to do all that. There are choices that have to be made. And Paul and this team are trying to figure out what cities are we going to stay in for an extended period of time, and what cities are we just going to sleep in overnight and keep moving and go on to the next place? Where can I have the biggest impact? That's one of the questions they're asking. Where is the best opportunity? Where can I have the most influence in my life? That has been a question that I have asked myself my entire life, and it has dictated where I went, what I did, who I spent time with, and things like that. Those are important questions. Thessalonica was the capital of the region, had a pretty large population. The guess is somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 people. It was a harbor city with all kinds of, of traffic and boats coming and going all the time, just a, a, a you know, diverse group of people. Um, there were massive farming opportunities in Thessalonica, the groceries that you could get there, the, the, the fruits and vegetables that came out of this region of the country were just outstanding. And, and Paul and Silas choose Thessalonica because it is strategic. You have to understand that. If they can get a church to take root here in Thessalonica, it will have an impact over the entire region with so much traffic moving in and out, with so many boats and so many boots on the ground moving through this metropolis of a city and all these different, uh, it was kind of like a crossroads, you know, just a lot of stuff going on there. Um, The message of Jesus would be able to spread even faster if they could uh, get a church to take hold in the city of Thessalonica the walking wounded. They've been beat up physically, they've been beat up emotionally, and yet they still had the focus to figure out what is next and why it was next. Can I just offer the word to the wise here? Do not let your life go wasted. And I need to remember this too. Not only am I capable of wasting my life, uh, there are individuals who are more than happy to help me waste my life. You know, it can be as simple as I just went online to try to, you know, learn how to wire a harness on my trailer, a wiring harness on, on my trailer, and um, the next thing I know, I'm being confronted with, with a, a headline that says, the 20 best classic rock songs of the 70s and 80s. Now, <laughs> I know what I think are the, are the 20 greatest rocks, classic rock songs of the 70s and 80s. I know what I think they are. But when I see that headline, the thing that goes through my mind is, well, I want to see what the joker that wrote this article thinks are the top 20 songs, uh, best rock songs of the the 70s and 80s, because I just can't leave that alone, right? And so there I go, click. Or maybe I'm online trying to figure out how to, you know, what temperature needs to be set for me to 
broil some fish in my uh, oven so that I can have dinner that night, and I go out to you know, kind of see the recipe there, and the next thing you know, I'm confronted with a headline, and it's, it's uh, you know, some sports reporter has asked the question, pound for pound, who was the better running back, Walter Payton or Barry Sanders? Well, again, I got to see what they say about that, right? So click, I'm going to go read that article. And, and then I just have to remember that really smart people are paying really, really smart people to keep me on their site. If they can get me there, then there are other people that are working really hard to make sure that I stay there. One of the most dangerous sounds in our world these days is the sound of click, click, click. How many hours have you spent going down some rabbit hole looking at something that you didn't get online to look at, but the next thing you know, you look up and an hour has gone and you've been reading articles about, um, you know, I don't know, <laughs> Uh, squirrel obstacle courses who knows what I mean you can find anything on the internet right and and it just doesn't take very long until you just get completely sucked in and you've clicked your way through an hour with really nothing to show for it Uh, this gets even harder when you are in a season of pain because when you're in a season of pain what you really want to do is just zone out you just you really want to check out you want to numb yourself for a while am I right Paul and Silas leave Philippi beaten up. And yet what we will see out of them is an incredible focus where they say, no, not there. No, we're not going to go there. No, we're going to go here. There is a focus about them. The second part of this story deals with the message that Paul and Silas and their team was carrying to these various cities. They've gone into the part of the city where there is a Jewish synagogue. We read this in verse two. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah he said. It it says that uh, as was his custom. There was this city of Thessalonica, but in the center of the city, there would have been this Jewish community and a gathering of people at the Jewish synagogue uh, on Saturdays, which would have been their Sabbath. So uh, whenever possible, Paul would go into a city. He would choose to go directly to the synagogue. That was his strategic point. That's the place he went to. It was kind of the place he went to to get things moving, to to find people who might be of like mind and and who would have some relationship or be able to respond favorably, hopefully, to the Jesus story that he was sharing. What I'm saying is his focus wasn't necessarily Thessalonica in general, but more specifically, his focus was the synagogue. So you ask yourself the question, well, why is that? Well, uh, Paul had a Jewish background. Silas had a Jewish background. The message and the the presentation is that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the the promised Messiah. So they would often start with someone or a group of someones who were very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures who had an expectation of a coming Messiah. If you're going to say things like, our Messiah has come, it's a really good idea to say things like that to people who've been expecting a Messiah, and that's what Paul and Silas were doing in Thessalonica. We're given 
some type of a time stamp here as well. How many weekends does it say that he, he stayed in Thessalonica teaching people? It, it tells us that it was three Sabbaths. So three Sabbaths, three weeks, he is there and he is reasoning, he is explaining, he is proving. And it says specifically he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul is telling these people this was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago in our own scriptures that our, our Messiah must suffer and die. And it's a fairly crazy concept that your coming glorious triumphant king is going to get himself killed. But beyond that, he attempted to prove to them from the scriptures that this coming Messiah would not only get himself killed, but after that would come back to life and rise from the dead. Now, Acts 17 does not tell us what scriptures Paul used to reason with people in the synagogue there in Thessalonica. But I think that it's not a, a reach to guess that he might have used a scripture, something like what we find in Isaiah 53, which reads, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Later in verse 11 of chapter 53 in Isaiah, he says this, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. These are the kinds of prophecies that Paul would have used to direct the attention of those in the synagogue towards seeing Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, here's his death, here's his resurrection. Jesus came to us, he was executed. We saw him after he came back to life. These are the things that, that Paul would have been saying to people. He reasoned, he explained, he proved. You, you draw from that that there was some type of back and forth between these people uh, in the synagogue, that Paul was just not on some street corner somewhere with a sandwich board walking around saying, repent, the end is near, repent, the end is near. That's not what he did. Believe in Jesus. You know, he didn't just walk around with a sign that said, repent and believe in Jesus. He used a well-reasoned argument. I would say this to you. I would say this to anybody who is a skeptic this morning. You do not have to check your brain at the door to believe in Jesus. I have said that my entire life when I've encountered people who are much smarter than me, who, who had a hard time making the leap of faith into a belief in Christ. I've said that. You, you don't have to check your brain at the door. Someone in here uh, right now may be thinking to themselves, you know, I, I want to take a leap of faith. Brett, I really do. I want to take that leap of faith, but I'm just more of a rational person, and I don't just leap. I have to think it through. Well, here's what I would say to you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe if you tenaciously pursue the truth, you are inevitably going to arrive at Jesus. I don't believe that the truth is afraid of your search. Certainly Jesus is not afraid of you pursuing the truth because I think Jesus would say when you pursue the truth, you're in essence pursuing me. If you will pursue the truth, if you will lay your biases and your excuses down and just examine all truth, you are going to arrive at Jesus. It's okay to think. <laughs> it's okay to think. Paul reasoned. He explained he proved. 
Weekend after weekend after weekend, he did this. Anthony Flew, one of the greatest atheistic minds of the 20th and 21st centuries, changes his mind. What did that? According to him, it was DNA, it was mathematics, and it was physics. You see, scientific process did not push Anthony Flew away from God. Scientific process drew him in. It reeled him in to the point that he was willing to say, I don't really care what I've said before. I don't care what I've written. There has to be something out there that is bigger than us. There has to be something that has engineered the world in which we live. Don't see reason and faith as opposites. Ask yourself the question, is there a reason to believe? Is there a legitimate reason to believe? Yeah, I'm going to have to take a leap of faith, which by the way, I would just say to you, we do that every day of our lives without even realizing it. You take leaps of faith in your life every single day without really realizing that that's what you're doing. But when we make this leap to Jesus, it is to a reasonable faith. Some of you have no challenges in this area. Some of you, your faith in Jesus, it's an easy thing for you. It's an easy thing to believe in God. It's an easy thing to believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. There are others of you, though, that would say this to me. You would say, yeah, Brett, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. I'd like to show you some resources that might help you in your uh, attempt to make this leap. You know, I, I really believe that there's a lot of people who want to believe, they just haven't seen or heard or read the thing that is compelling enough to really make them go all in with their faith. I'd just like to offer you a couple of books maybe that you might peruse and read uh, that might change your mind, that might get, help you to get over the hump, so to speak, and help you to get to the place where you can, um, you know, with some real... Uh, sense of having studied and worked it through and reasoned through it, um, a place where you can believe in Jesus. One of those is a book by Tim Keller. Timothy Keller wrote a book called A Reason for God. That might be a book that would be very helpful for you. Another one is Lee Strobel's wonderful book, The Case for Christ. I'll even throw in a, a third book for you to consider. John Dixon, Don, John Dixon mentioned Anthony Flew. And uh, he debated Gary Habermas some years ago, and it became a book. They wrote that debate or that conversation down. And if you fancy yourself someone who needs <laughs> high ropes thinking, right? Like you, you just can't listen to just any bumpkin like me. Uh, you need somebody that's really educated. You need to hear from some people that are really philosophizing and, and talking about things on a really high level. I would challenge you to read, Did the Resurrection Happen? A conversation between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew. None of these three books are written by bumpkins, okay? These are, these are not low-level, low-intellect books. These are high-level, high-intellect books. Timothy Keller pastored a church in New York City for years. He is considered highly intelligent, highly cultured. He's very highly educated. Lee Strobel was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune and a militant atheist who, when his wife became a Christian, he set out to destroy her faith in Jesus and her faith in the resurrection. He spent 18 months traveling the country, really traveling 
the world, trying to figure out a way to undermine and shoot down the faith that his wife had had, had now in Jesus. And at the end of 18 months, what happened is that he was overwhelmed by the evidence that existed to support her faith in Jesus. And at the end of the whole thing, he ends up giving his life to Christ, and now he pastors a church in Texas. Uh, the thing about the case for Christ is it is kind of presented as if it were a court case because he was a legal editor. That's his kind of realm. That was kind of his field, and so that's the way he presents the book. And then Gary Habermas is perhaps one of the greatest apologists for the resurrection in church history. Um, you want to think? You want an intellectual stimulation? You, you want all the arguments to be made from a high intellectual perspective, these are the kind of books that I would point you to. Uh, three consecutive Sundays, or not Sundays, Sabbath days, would have been Saturday for them at the synagogue. Three consecutive Saturdays, Paul shows up. He explains, he proves, he pulls out the scrolls and he reads to people and he reasons with them from the things he's reading. He, he uses their scriptures. He uses their writings. Here's the question. What are the people going to do with that information? Did he convince them? Or didn't he convince them? The synagogue was a, a great place to start because the people already had some uh, familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, and they had already believed that a Messiah was going to come. The question was, was it Jesus? And in fact, a lot of times when Paul went into these cities and he started talking about a Messiah, they hadn't even heard about Jesus. They didn't know anything about Jesus. And so sometimes the conversation went well as Jesus, as Jesus was explained by Paul, and he said, look, you've been looking for a Messiah. I'm here to tell you that Messiah has showed up. He's been crucified, and now he has risen and gone back to be with God. Our Messiah has come. And so it was a great place to start the synagogue, but it was also a great place to get yourself beaten up. Part three of our talk today, the response. Acts chapter 17, verse four. Some, I want you to notice there are three uh, uh, notes of quantity that we're gonna read in this passage. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And Jesus, the Jesus community, is born in Thessalonica. Today, we would call it a church. It, it probably met in someone's home, uh, not in church buildings. It probably, um, you know, a small gathering of people. There are some quantity indicators that we looked at there. It says some Jews joined Paul. It says large numbers of God-fearing Greeks joined Paul. And then it says, uh, you know, a fair amount of of prominent women also came to faith as Paul spoke. And what you can probably surmise from these descriptors is that if you walked into the church at Thessalonica, you would likely find fewer Jewish believers and more people from a Greek temple background. Now let me just ask you a question. If that's true, if you were gonna find fewer Jews and more Greeks, how do you suppose this hit the Jews who didn't necessarily buy in or agree with the things that Paul was trying to say. Disappointed, maybe, with what Paul had to say. Maybe a little angry, hostile, outraged. 
Verse 5 tells us the response. But other Jews were jealous, which is an interesting word to use to me there. Other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Now, call me crazy, but it just seems a little bit extreme to me. How about you? This rage, this, this violent rage over what is happening in this new Jesus community. It says they rounded up some bad characters from this, the marketplace. That riot likely happened right here in the marketplace, what we might refer to as the Agora, or what we might call the Forum of Thessalonica. Let, let's, let's talk about this rage and where it might have come from. Not just to understand what happened in Thessalonica, but also to understand why it happened over and over and over again. We see this out of Paul numerous times. He goes to the synagogue, he preaches, he reasons, he teaches in the synagogue, and, and he, he presents this material over and over again, and he's constantly finding himself at odds with the people who disagree or don't like what he has to say. Let's look at a map for a second. This uprising where people got so outraged, it starts in Antioch, in Acts 13, we read about that. This happened at Antioch. It also happened in Iconium and Lystra. We see about that in Acts 14. It's going to happen in Thessalonica, and it's going to happen again down in Corinth. So what I, I want, I'm going to do next is I'm going to try to help you not only to understand uh, this story, but also to use this as a guide to understand why the rage over this Jesus thing. Why did they get so upset? And there's a really a very good reason as I explain this to you when I get done, I think you're gonna be able to see, oh, that makes sense, <laughs> it makes sense that, that they would be upset. See, if you were born into a Greek family, you are born into a Greek system. And by that, I don't mean sororities and fraternities, I mean the Greco-Roman world. You would come to the temple of Poseidon, or you would come to the temple of Apollo, or Zeus, or Athena, or Aphrodite, and these gods didn't really care about how you behaved yourself. You could lie, you could rip people off. The Greek gods didn't really care. They lied. They ripped people off. You know, when you hear about the Greek gods, they did things like that. And in the Greek world, sexually speaking, anything goes. And you contrast the Greek system with the, the God of Israel, the creator of the universe, and, and in that system, if that God is all light and no darkness, if that God is all truth, then the question becomes, how do you present yourself to a God who is all light? In other words, a God who cares about the way we act and the way we behave. Well, if you come to the synagogue, the answer is you turn to the law. You turn to the, not, not just the, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, not just the law of Moses, but also dietary laws, washing laws, ceremonial laws, purification laws, laws that said you've got to close your store on the Sabbath day. So a Greek would, would get to this Jewish God by passing through the rules through the Jewish law. You present yourself to a God who is only light, by making yourself presentable. You, you get accepted by a holy God by making yourself acceptable and you better present yourself as, a, as holy as you can if you expect this God 
to love you and to accept you. And then the Apostle Paul comes to town. So that was the system, right? That's, what, that's how they were taught. And then Paul comes rolling into town, and he goes to the synagogue, and he starts telling the story of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And he starts to explain to people with a Jewish background and with a Greek background that Jesus was your substitute on the cross, that, the, that he is the one who is holy for you. He was presentable for you. He was acceptable when you could not be acceptable. He was perfect when you couldn't be perfect. You have a substitute in Christ, Paul would say, and, and he has built a bridge that does not require the Hebrew law. He has built a bridge to God that does not require the Hebrew law. Now, if you're a law-abiding Jewish person with the Jewish law system, and you have spent your entire life trying to obey and teach, you go, wait a minute, what, what, what are you saying? Are you, are you saying that those people, that these, these people with a Greek background, that they are equal to us? <laughs> and then Paul would look back and he would say something to the effect of, well, actually, it's worse than that. Not only are they equal to you, but they're ahead of you. They understand this in a way that you don't understand it. You think you've got to go through all these laws to get to God, and you don't. So they're actually ahead of you because the law can't get you there. And if they had put their faith in the substitute sufferer, they are not just equal to you, they're ahead of you. This infuriated the Jews over and over again as Paul would tell this message, as he would teach these Jewish believers, they would hear this and they would hear what Paul was saying to these Greek people and it would anger them. It would make them, the word we saw earlier was jealous. Paul was turning upside down a system that they had invested their whole lives in. And they got so mad that it says in verse 5, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And I think that if you are Paul, uh, if you were to, if you were to pull, pull Paul aside and you were to say, man, Paul, can you believe that they're getting mad like this? I think his answer would be, oh, <laughs> unfortunately, I fully understand why they're upset. Because when we first meet the Apostle Paul, that is not his name. When we first meet the Apostle Paul, his name is Saul of Tarsus. And he is so angry and he is so furious uh, at this emerging Jesus movement that he is kicking indoors and he is arresting believers and having them beat up. When Saul of Tarsus encounters Jesus, he is traveling the 100 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus for the purpose of rounding up Christians, bringing them back to the city of Jerusalem and having them face trial and in all likelihood maybe even face death. You can run, Paul would say, but you can't hide. We will find you and you will be dealt with. And, and, and you know, Paul, can you believe that this is the way they responded in Thessalonica? And I think Paul would say, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do, because that had been his reaction at one time. They think Paul and Silas are staying at the home of a guy named Jason. And they go to Jason's house and they break in. They do not find Paul and Silas. They find Jason and some other guys in this house. They haul them into court and they basically say, these men are preaching and they're teaching and, and, that, and that their king is greater than Caesar uh, and that they're talking about a kingdom, they're talking about an empire, 
And, of course, Paul had talked about the kingdom of God, and so these, these people, when they haul Jason and his friends into court, they lay all this on them and say, you know, they're talking about a kingdom, and they're saying that it's greater than Caesar. Well, they haul Jason and these guys in, and they say, listen, we want cash. And if we have any more trouble with this type of talk, or if there's any more talk of, of a resurrection, and if you talk about a kingdom, um, they made these guys basically post a bond, and they said, if, if we have any more trouble, you're going to lose your money. You're not going to get your money back. So did Paul and Silas come out and, and speak to the crowd and calm things down? No. They are being hidden. Here's how they leave town. We're told in Acts 17, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And here we go again. They sneak Paul and Silas out of town. Under cover of darkness, they make their way the 50 miles east to Berea. We will see that story next weekend. Question. Are their backs still messed up from their time in Philippi? My guess is yes. I think they're still messed up. I think that you could easily refer to Paul and Silas at this point as they leave Thessalonica. I think you could refer to them as the walking wounded. These guys are on point. They are in motion. They are focused. They do not allow their pain to get in the way of their focus or their message or their calling by God. Even though they are attempting to navigate opposition and pain, they are at the same time very focused on what it is that God has called them to do. Paul goes through Berea. He goes through Athens. He will end up in Corinth. He has left Timothy behind in Thessalonica uh, to help this young church establish some roots, to help them to kind of get their footing. Timothy eventually comes down to Corinth where Paul is in the south, and he says, man, Paul, these Thessalonians, they, they are just, they're thriving. They're taking heat, but they're standing up under the heat. They're, they're, they're remaining faithful. You'd be so proud of them. And when Paul got that news, he responded, when Timothy told him that, he responded by writing a correspondence to the church that had just been established in Thessalonica. We have it in our scriptures as first Thessalonians. It was his first letter to that young group of believers, probably just months removed from the story that we looked at today when he sneaked out of town in the middle of the night. He's trying to find a metaphor for his relationship with the believers in Thessalonica. He's trying to figure out a way to help them understand how he sees them and how much they, they love the Thessalonican church there. And the only, he's looking for a tender image, and the only one he can really come up with, it isn't the image of a mentor and a mentee. It's not the image of a student and a teacher. The, the image that he comes up with is the image of a mother nursing her baby. He said this, he said, this is really how much we loved you, and this is really how much we care about you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We came to Thessalonica beaten up, limping, bleeding. We gave you 
all we had. It's one of the greatest challenges in life. How do you give yourself away to other people in the name of Jesus when you yourself are in pain? How do you do that? It's a question that I've been trying to figure out my entire adult life as I have been in ministry. Now I wanna preface what I'm about to say next with this. (laughs) I'm fine, okay? I'm in good space. Uh, I'm strong, I'm healthy, I, I mentally, spiritually, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm healthy, I'm, in, I'm pleased with the place where I am mentally, spiritually, uh, physically, I'm in a good place. But I'm going to tell you something that I've been thinking about for a while now. I, I'll be 60 in September. I'm not young anymore. I, I've been around a while. It took me some time to get comfortable with that notion, but I, I have gotten comfortable with that. I've experienced a lot. I failed a lot. I've learned a lot. I would like to think that along with those failures and learning has come some wisdom. And for a few months now, I've just kind of been taking stock of my life and I've been asking the question, Brett, what part of your life has been the sweetest part of your life? What part have you enjoyed the most? When you look back, what things stand out to you as memorable and things that bring a smile to your face? What part of your life have you enjoyed the most success? What part of, where have you failed in life? That's a question that, that I visit from time to time. Brett, where have you failed in life? And what did you learn through those failures? And another question that I ask myself and have been asking for the last several months is, Brett, what has been the hardest part of life for you? And as I have thought through all of that, I've reached the conclusion that for me, and, and again, I can only speak for me, I can only talk about my experience. But I've come to the conclusion that for me, ministry has been the hardest thing that I've ever tried to do in my life. I have literally, at one point in my life, I sat across the table from other couples who were going through marriage hardships, and the thought that was going through my mind at the time was, I only wish that my marriage had as few problems as yours does. There have been times when I've been trying to help people with their marriage where my marriage was just in shambles. Um, I, I've gone to, to other people in their pain and their grief, and, and I've sat down, and, and if they only knew how worn out I was or how distracted I was by my own pain or something that was going on in my world, and I was trying to put all that to the side and lock into what's going on with them and be present in their pain to help them navigate what it was that they were experiencing, that that if they only knew how hard I was working to try to hold it all together just for a few minutes while I was with them so that I could later go be alone and fall apart on my own. I have gotten up here and preached on so many Sundays when my heart had been absolutely broken because I had been misunderstood or because someone had somehow questioned my motives about something or there was something that was going on that was just so heavy that I couldn't tell anybody about and and, and it just it all rested on me and here I was expected to get up and teach and talk and tell you about Jesus all the while with things going on heavy on my heart heavy on my mind and my body And, and, and I didn't go into ministry to get rich. I didn't go into ministry to get famous. I didn't go into ministry so that I could pastor some big church. I didn't go into ministry so that I could get attention. I got into ministry because I loved God and I felt called to go and and answer the call that God put on my life to love and care for his people. And for going on 40 years now, that is really all I have ever tried 
to do. And the greatest challenge through it all for me has been to give myself away to others when I myself was going through some real pain. Often when we are in pain, we whisper a prayer that sounds something like this, God, I just want to get through this and get on with my life. If you can just help me to get through this and get on with my life. And I've prayed a prayer like that. And I think there have been times God would have looked back at me and said, that's great, Brett, but I want to use your life before you are well. <laughs> I want to use your life before you get out of this pain. I want to use your life while you're in the middle of this kind of pain. I want to give you strength for your journey in a way that would empower you to love and serve other people even when you don't feel that you are anywhere close to being whole yourself. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, remember that phrase, with the help of our God, we dared you, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And they encountered a riot in Thessalonica. With the help of our God. With the help of our God. Strength for the journey. That is what I pray for you this morning, my dear friends that you would discover ways to love and care for and look after others who belong to Christ and even those who don't, even before you yourself are completely healed. My prayer this week is that you would find strength for your journey even as you are the walking wounded. That is what God calls us to do, to serve in the midst of our pain to serve in the midst of our confusion. We don't always have it all figured out, and sometimes if everybody knew what was going on behind the eyes, they would be amazed that you're even upright. But God calls us to be faithful. He calls us to help and to serve and to love others. And when we're in pain, that is so, so hard to do because we truly are the walking wounded. May you find strength for your journey, even in those moments when you would describe yourself as the walking wounded. Let's pray together. Father, you're amazing. Um, sometimes the things you call us to seem hard, but it is not anything that you did not do yourself. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who walked wounded. People took shots at him all the time. They questioned his motives. They called him a liar. They made fun of him. They put him down. They mistreated him. They challenged him. And all he did was just continually love and serve, love and serve. He modeled for us what it was to be humble and to love and to serve. And may we, Father, reflect the glory and the life of Christ as we ourselves work through our pain and our hardships and our heartaches to, to even in the midst of pain, do the things that you're calling us to do. Give us that kind of focus, Father, I pray, for strength for our journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.